from Workhouse Connect and A.J. Benza. Fame. Uh, he liked to be walked on a leash and play really dirty, kinky sex games. He's a... The guy put the cock in the Peacock Network, okay? Bitch. Hey, everybody. A.J. Benza here with Fame is a Bitch. This is your podcast for May 1st, 2020. Uh, I was going to tell you um, a handful of uh, Hollywood-type stories, you know, uh, tabloid-type stories that I've lined up. And then a story came across my laptop this morning by my buddy, Bert Kearns. And I thought, this is too this is too fun not to tell. And I can interject some of my... Um, some of my my past history on on this episode as well, so I think it ends up being something pretty cool to hear about, and it has a lot to do with the city of New York and this pandemic and uh, the lockdown, etc. So many of you already know about a little show of support that has turned into a new custom in New York City. It is a very beautiful and emotional gesture that, that that tugs on my heart every time I see a video of it on social media or the news or what have you. And it's that nightly moment when uh, the city of New York or the city of New York and its and its inhabitants lean out their windows or stand on their terraces or simply stop in the street and start applauding the city's first responders uh, at 7 p.m. when they get off their shift. Doctors, nurses, hospital aides, you name it. Anybody and everybody who's out there on the front lines battling this goddamn flu. And every night for the last several weeks, when the clock strikes 7 p.m., um, the city erupts in this nightly outpouring of support for healthcare workers and, 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 and such. And now... People have added a soundtrack to their applause, which is as familiar as the skyline itself. Um, It's a song the city is too familiar with since the New York Yankees have been playing it on those summer nights when the Yankees win a big game in the Bronx. It's also the song that revived the sagging career of that skinny Italian kid who grew up across the river, and that would be Frank Sinatra. So, look, we all know the lyrics. It's a song that plays all too often in the heads of New Yorkers, people who firmly believe from deep within the dark purple of their hearts that if you can stay alive in our city, if you can keep your head above water and above the doubters, if you can stay afloat in the dark ocean of danger and opportunity, then anywhere else on earth, I don't care where you go, it'll be a snap. It's also a song that playfully reminds all of us who did make it in New York uh, that we need not worry about going anywhere else because we know we made it in New York and we can make it anywhere. For me, sometimes the lyrics to the song just kind of cement the fact that no matter what forces knocked my city on its ass, whether it's a bunch of terrorists or an invisible virus, I don't feel good about not being there, not being able to help my city back on its feet. I don't care how far away you move from New York City. When you see it hurting like that, the way it is now, trying to put its mouthpiece back in uh, after it got beat up and it's trying to beat the bell, you just want to put everything else down 
And you want to be there for the city that never abandoned us. You want to be a part of it. And so I sit here in Los Angeles, 2,449 miles away from my last apartment on 95 Horatio Street. An apartment whose back windows faced the Twin Towers. So the terror was real for me. Uh, Only not that I saw them come down, but that they were always two towers that looked into my bedroom every night. It's something that a lot of New Yorkers feel those towers were like parents almost. Because no matter where you were in the city, if you looked up, they were always looking down at you. They kind of had our backs for so long. But as I sit in this place in LA, so far away, I can only imagine how how I'd love to be one of those people who stop whatever it is they're doing and rush to a window and hear Frank Sinatra's wonderful voice fill every canyon and courthouse, every vacant block, an empty bar. Oh, that must be amazing. When me and my buddy Neil Gumpel raced back to New York City like an hour after the second tower fell, uh, I remember making calls to my cousin Phil, who worked in Manhattan as a building inspector. And a lot of his work was downtown Manhattan. So he knew that area very well. In fact, Phil, believe it or not, found a box cutter on the roof of a building across from the Twin Towers that had Arabic writing on it. And he actually gave, turned it into the FBI. It's crazy shit. But um, as we're going across America, uh, me and Gumpel, and listening to Michael Savage, Savage Nation radio show, and all these events, all these things are being carried out in real time. It was insane what my stomach felt like. But I remember calling Phil and you know, and just uh, trying to get through to him, which was impossible. By the second day in the car, um, we were calling Phil a lot more. And hopefully, I just wanted to know if he could put us anywhere near Grand Zero to help out. If anybody could do it, he could do it. And it wasn't until sometime in the third day of our driving, we heard about this bucket brigade that was going to be forming and, and was forming, and it was going to pull life and limb from the smoking pile. Most of the people on there, professional firefighters and, you know, anybody else with that kind of training. But there were some civilians on that line, and I wanted to be there so bad. And when, when I finally got through the fill, to Philip, he said he'd, he'd do what he can. But by the time we got to the city the next day, and I still can recall seeing the angry smoke above the city being visible from deep inside Pennsylvania as we drove and the, the odor of death and melted steel and plastic. And, you know, God knows whatever the hell else was in there, jet fuel. You could smell that in Philadelphia as well. And by that time, there were already hundreds of men more qualified than me who volunteered to do that necessary dirty work. I I just, you know, we wanted to get our hands full, but uh, with no room on the line. Instead, you know, we went downtown, we stayed nearby, we just comforted big, strong men and women, and, and, and most of them were reduced to tears all the time, all day long. We collected clothes and shoes and brought bags and bags of stuff to the front line. I mean, it was, I'd never been a part of something like that. Um, it was, you know, to say you'll never forget it is, Another another thing entirely, but to be there, and uh, and when I say there, I don't mean Ground Zero itself. I mean in surrounding areas within a mile or two. Uh, it was just the city was never like that. 
there was no, there just was no racism. It felt like that was out the window. It felt like, well, it didn't feel like it. It was. Everybody was there for each other. Everybody had each other's back. It was wonderful. Even though when you looked over your shoulder behind you was the most morbid scene you'd ever seen in your life. So um, when you're down there, you, 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 you hug or comfort strangers. It was something of a necessity to do that. You felt you wanted to do it. And nobody was turning away from being comforted. And despite what people say about, you know, us New Yorkers, um, we can be we can be tough to deal with, you know, but all that kind of shit. Most of us are the most compassionate people you'll ever meet. And a lot of us walk around with a heavy heart as it is, and this just added to it. So hugging and kissing someone suffering is second nature to New Yorkers. And uh, look, you throw in an Italian who likes to hug and kiss, you know, you can imagine what I want. I was hugging fucking flagpoles. But, you know, uh, there were millions of moments like that all over the city of people being comforted. It's a natural thing to do. But with this flu, can't touch anybody. Can't come within six feet of people, let alone wrap your arms around them. Got to watch people be upset. Watch people be sad. It's it's. It's it plays with your heart in a way nine eleven didn't. It's a different kind of, uh, of of hurt. Look, before I tell you the story, let me get this ad out of the way. I fucked up the other day. I didn't say a particular word in this read, and you know you got to say it exactly right. So right now, let me just say this: a lot of us have cut corners to save money. Certainly not spend more than we need to. I mean, look, outside of becoming a patron uh, on this show for five measly bucks. I suggest you hold on to your money. But if you must shop, be smart and do so with Honey. Honey is the free online shopping tool that saves you money online. It automatically finds the best promo codes and applies them to your cart. Uh, I don't care where you do your shopping, Etsy, uh, Best Buy, Walmart, Target, doesn't matter. Um, Just when you go to checkout, this little box drops down. All you have to do is click apply coupons. A few seconds later, it scans for every promo code on the internet, and boom, your price goes down right in front of your eyes. Like I mentioned before, the wife and I used this several times in the past. We've been pleased every time. First time we ever used it, we saved 43 bucks on a baby monitor for my niece. We felt so good, we bought another gift with the money we saved. Well, the money Honey saved us. It's a great business. It's got over 18 million members who saved over $2 billion on their purchases. Plus, it's supported with uh, 30,000 stores online, and they're adding more every day. Not using Honey is literally passing up free money. It's uh, it's free, installs in just a few seconds. Plus, it's backed by PayPal, so you know it's on the up and up. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash fame. That's joinhoney.com slash fame. Okay. A lot of you may know, I'm proud to say, I do not read the New York Times. The reporters on that paper frequently tell lies in their stories. And the editors who are supposed to vet these stories turn their cheek to the left. Always the left, if you know what I mean. But I'm going to pull a few wonderful bits out of a story in today's New York Times since my buddy sent it to me and He's one of those friends who puts pals over politics. That's why we get along so well. He's blue, I'm red, but it don't mean shit when we're together. Um, And the story is this. 
with the city in the grip of this coronavirus. New York, New York, like I mentioned, is once again a part of the city's anthem, as it was after 9-11, as it still is at police promotion ceremonies. It's such a powerful song that I honestly don't recall what the city felt like without it. And on top of that, I know I still have room to hear it another million times and still not be sick of it. It's just really too too difficult to imagine that this song didn't almost get made. So check this out. Back in 1977, Martin Scorsese was making the movie New York, New York. You've seen that? De Niro plays a saxophone. I think his name was Jimmy Doyle in that movie. And uh, Liza Minnelli is a singer. Anyhow, they needed a title track. So the prolific songwriting team of John Kander and Fred Ebb, they've been around forever. They wrote a song and brought it to a meeting with Scorsese and Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli to see what they thought. And they played a few different songs, and Scorsese and Liza liked them a lot. Liza's a Broadway chick, Kander and Ever Broadway, it makes sense. But as they're about to leave, De Niro's on the other side of the room, and he, he, he waves his arm to Scorsese to come by. And Marty says, excuse me, fellas, I'll be right back. And he goes over and talks to De Niro. Very animated conversation, a lot of arms flailing, you know, a couple of Italians talking. Kandra uh, and Ebb couldn't hear what they were saying, but they knew they were like animated in what they were talking about. Scorsese returns a little embarrassed and he says, Look, you know, Bobby found the title number a little lightweight. Why don't you try it again? Why don't you try to come up with some new stuff? So Kandra and Ebb, who are tremendously prolific and don't need an actor to tell them I didn't like your song, these guys did Chicago and Cabaret, just a few out of the, off the top of my head. They were pissed off. They're like, what's this? A fucking actor's going to tell us that the song's not good enough? No, it doesn't work that way. But it is Scorsese, it is De Niro, and it is Liza. So they go back to uh, Ebb's apartment, and in about 45 minutes, they write this song called New York, New York. Okay? And, and they bring it back, and they sing it. And this time, De Niro is thrilled with what he heard. So Liza sang the song on the film soundtrack, and it seemed to belong to her. Honestly, I can't stand Liza. I shouldn't say I can't stand it. I don't really like to hear Liza sing this song. She's not a New Yorker. I mean, I know she's affiliated with New York at times, but she's not a New Yorker. She starts it wonderfully. But as it builds, she used to do this thing where she'd wave her arms and get all animated and crazy and too Broadway, if you know what I mean. These little town about Oh, stop it. A little bit too much of a mother in that part of the song. So, look, I think the way she sang it, it sucked It sucked the machismo out of the song. And that song's got a pair of balls on it. And she feminized it, in my opinion. It's too Broadway. Anyhow, eventually, the song became Frank's song and not hers. Let me tell you what happened. At this point in time, Sinatra is in his early 60s. He recently emerged from this early retirement And there was a very different landscape in America in front of him. You know, unfortunately, the ring-a-ding-ding days of the Rat Pack had sailed by. And when Frank stuck his head out of a hole and began to sing again, he had to adapt quickly to a music world that was more Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd than Perry Como and Jerry Vale. And there are a lot of examples of Sinatra struggling to be relevant around this time. Several authors have written books on this subject alone. 
and they make no bones about saying Frank, you know, fought this ambivalent battle against the new music. And sometimes trying to make some of these songs his own were very underwhelming efforts. Um, and he was just straining to be relevant again. And I've told you about the story of him phoning a young manager named Jerry Weintraub from uh, his place, I believe, in Vegas. And they sat up on the roof and Frank said, kid, I'm, I'm, I'm cooked. I'm done. I, I, I don't know what else to do. I feel like I'm just at a spot and I can't get the hell out of it. My feet are stuck in the sand. I need help. He knew that Weintraub had done something really significant for Elvis Presley when he was really young, so he figured maybe he can do something for his career. And I've told you about this story uh, of those two guys being up on the roof, um, and Frank wanted to be king of the hill again. And that was the meeting where, um, well, Jerry Weintraub, who would go on to make tens of millions of dollars managing recording artists and eventually producing films like Nashville and Diner, the Karate Kid and the Ocean's 13 movies, you know, he starts pulling ideas out of his ass because he didn't prepare for this meeting. Frank just said, come now, I need you. So he thought real quickly and said, you know, Frank, I, I think I see you singing inside New York City's Madison Square Garden. Um, hundreds of celebrities in the audience. Howard Cosell announcing your entrance into the world's greatest arena. But then he really hooked Frank when he said, but you're not going to sing on stage, Mr. Sinatra. Frank said, kid, call me Frank for fuck's sake, would you? He said, oh, okay, Frank, sorry. Listen, I, I don't see you singing on the stage. I see you singing inside a boxing ring where all champions belong. And Frank said, kid, I'm sold. You saved me. Now get to work. Make it happen. So back to the song. It turns out it was actually Frank's wife, Barbara, who suggested he cover New York, New York. And, you know, Frank immediately said, nah, that's Liza's song. I can't do that to her. Barbara persuaded him to play it at a 1978 concert in at Radio City Music Hall, a show that me and my mother and father happened to have gone to. And uh, I remember looking in the playbill to see the songs in what order he was going to sing them. And uh, I remember seeing New York, New York and saying, I don't know this song. Where's this come from? Well, when Frank sang the number that he almost didn't sing, the fucking house came down. And when I say down, I mean down. Because I witnessed my mother stand up to watch the skinny kid she used to cut school to see sing at the Paramount Theater back in the 40s. Uh, and then as soon as Frank walked out on stage that night and said, she gets hungry for dinner at eight, boom, my mother went right down. I saw her knees buckle. Her ass went right back in her seat, too weak to stand up. Now, also in the house that night is the Sinatra historian and radio personality, Jonathan Schwartz. He hears the song and rushes over to Frank and says, you got to record this, Frank. Frank says, ah, we'll see. But even Frank Sinatra couldn't deny how the people in the arena reacted to that song. So he reluctantly called Liza Minnelli and hinted he may want to record it. And it was only after Liza said to him, it's okay, Uncle Frank, it's yours. Then he really got warm to the idea. So the following year, he's recording his ambitious triple album trilogy, Past, Present, and Future. And uh, there's a lot of cover versions on this CD. He's singing Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are. He's singing Neil Diamond's Song Sung Blue. But he still couldn't get his mind off that song and the wonderful fit of the Vagabond Shoes of New York, New York. So 
Now it's September 19th, 1979, in a studio in Hollywood. He records the song at last with a guy named Rob Fentress, a member of Sinatra's uh, inner circle, uh, one of a bunch of people who were in that room after the final take. And they're playing back the song, and Frank's sitting in the engineer chair, and Fentress said he was oblivious to all the noise around him, but he just focused on that song. And when it was done, you could see how pleased he was. He wasn't laughing. He was just slightly smiling. But those who knew him really well knew that's as close as Frank was going to get to just complete jubilation. So the song would eventually close his concerts for years to come. It actually nudged aside my way as the final song of most of those performances. Um, And it it was the last song he performed in public when him and a bunch of stars got on stage at L.A. Shrine Auditorium in 1995 during his tribute for his 80th birthday. But then a lot of you who have been on this ride with me for the last three years, you know what happened after that show at the Shrine. Those of you who have heard me tell my story before know that Frank Sinatra then sang for a handful of friends and family inside the closed piano bar of the Four Seasons Hotel at 1 a.m. You have to understand, the night of the show, while, while these artists are singing on stage and doing this tribute stuff for Frank, he's in this. He's in the audience with Barbara, not looking happy. You know, Frank Frank was a little bit, let's say, not... I think he had some Jack Daniels in him, put it that way. There were some instances where he was arguing with Barbara during the show. Somebody tried to help him up a step. He pulled his hand back. He wasn't in the best fucking mood. But one o'clock in the morning, he wants to sing at the Four Seasons. I was lucky enough to be there after his daughter Nancy called me because I'd just been with her at the concert. And now she calls me as I'm about to go to bed. I just took my suit off and she says three words I'll never forget. Daddy wants to sing. And there I was. I raced over to Four Seasons Hotel, put my suit back on, obviously. And I'm 15, 20 feet away from the chairman of the board. And he's singing Summer Wind all the way in the wee small hours of the morning. Just Frank and a glass of Jack Daniels in his hand and a stool. Does it get better than that? Didn't even need a microphone, guys. It was that small a room. It was an incredible full circle moment for me in my life because I'm a kid that was raised on the music of that man who a man who made my father proud to be an Italian, many people proud to be an Italian. And my mother, he made her as weak as a schoolgirl over many years in front of my eyes. And then to see him up close in such an intimate setting with his family next to me, I have a hard time putting into words. And you guys know me, I can talk about anything, especially when it also concerns me. But this was such a big moment in my life, you know. Um, and, I, you know, look, there were a lot of moves I had to make to get close to this man. I had to make friends with Nancy Sinatra, who happened to be coming to New York to pose for Playboy and, and do some publicity. I was there to talk to her. We went out many, many times for dinner. I got to know and love Nancy. Um, I had to battle with powerful publicists and a prolific producer named George Slaughter, who denied me a ticket to this 80th birthday party at the Shrine because I was writing stories in my column that challenged who these people had hired to sing that night. I didn't like some of the people they thought would be up on stage and Frank would appreciate. I didn't think Frank cared or even knew a bunch of these artists or a handful of them. 
And that bothered me. And eventually I had to appeal to Frank's childhood friend, a mobster named Lou Pacello, also known as Louis Domes. And it was Lou who sent me to L.A. with first class tickets to go to the show. But first I had to sit with Lou in the back of his bakery on 2nd Avenue, Venero's, and I had to make my case. And Lou knew a little of the problems I was having with uh, the publicist associated with Frank. And he told Nancy he wanted to help me so long as I only wrote good things about the show. I told him, I said, of course I will. Even though I'm not happy with some of these acts, I won't be critical at all. He said, what's this about Hootie and the Bluefish? I said, it's Hootie and the Blowfish, Lou, not Bluefish. And he said, Bluefish, Blowfish, what the fuck's the difference? Same shit. I said, you're right. That's my point. And we laughed. But anyhow, I promised him I wouldn't write anything critical about the show. So he makes the call to the people that backed Frank, and that sealed my fate as attending the show that night. So I was thrilled. Over the years, people asked me, when they wonder, why is it that the song works so much better with Frank than it did with Liza? And I've heard Tina Sinatra give her reasons for it, and it's hard, it's hard to argue the point. She says her father identified with the song because he grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey. He would look across the river at New York skyline. He wanted to be there. He wanted to be on the other side, she says. And I can only imagine what a wonderful thing it must be to be a part of that ritual in New York City every night at 7 p.m. when folks start blasting that song onto the streets below. And interestingly enough, some people had tried other songs before settling on New York, New York. One woman was blasting Heroes by David Bowie. Another was playing Bette Midler's Wind Beneath My Wings. But when that song came out of their windows, people seemed to walk right through the notes. Uh... They didn't stop in the street. It didn't do the same thing for them. But when New York, New York caught on as the soundtrack behind the applause, people stopped everything and went about thanking the first responders and clapping themselves until their hands felt numb. And I can tell you right now, that's a song that makes everybody feel like they're that person, that everyone is king of the hill, top of the heap. And when you're standing on a hill or a heap, It's a very natural thing, if you're a good person, to lower your hand and help get someone back up on their feet. Sometimes it's a child. Sometimes it's an elderly person. Sometimes it's a city. My city. New York. I'm A.J. Benza. That was your show for May 1st, 2020. I'll talk to you this Monday. Thank you for listening. Fame is a Bitch is an A.J. Benza Workhouse Connect production featuring the endless wisdom, insightful commentary, and sometimes fucked up perspective of A.J. Benza. Executive producer, Mike Agavino. Technical producer, Brian Vasquez.